James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 is where we're going to be tonight. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, I wrote down in my notes right after this, isn't this another fun passage? James has been letting the people have it, hasn't he? Now, we're going to deal with it at the very end of our study tonight. Are these people that he's writing to even saved? We'll deal with that when we get to the end of our study. But actually, even though this appears like a not fun passage, if we let God speak to us through us tonight, we're actually going to see its benefit. So I'm going to ask that you just take a deep breath. Try not to respond as our flesh wants to when we hear these words. And say, all right, Lord, what do you have for us? Everything you have for us is good. What is here that you want us to see? And it's like I've touched on earlier, some may think that this study is not for them because you're poor, not rich, but we all need to beware the temptation to become rich in this life. And if it wasn't in all of us in some form, this desire to be rich, the health and wealth preachers wouldn't have such big congregations. Have you ever thought about that? The fact that the health and wealth preachers can fill stadiums and big churches is because everybody has a little bit of this problem that we're going to look at tonight. Now, behind all of this is a need for a healthy biblical attitude towards money, and that will keep us from falling into the trap of a love of money. So let's lay a good foundation biblically first, and then we're going to come back and break down this section in James. All right. So is it wrong to be rich? financially? Good answer. No, the answer is no. It's not wrong to have money and, and things. Actually, God is the one who gives us the ability to produce wealth. So if God gives us the ability to produce wealth, wealth can't be a bad thing if God blesses us with it. With it. Go, to, go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look at verse 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 18, he says, you, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. He's just said in the previous verse, don't think when, when I bless you that you've done it. It's me who's done it. So if God's the one who blesses us with wealth, can't be a bad thing. Go to 1 Kings. Actually, we'll go to Proverbs 10 first. Go to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, and then we'll go to 1 Kings. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22 says this. The blessings of the Lord make rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. So the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Jump over to 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 through 14. This is in the section where Solomon prays for wisdom. God says, ask me anything you want. And Solomon says, I need wisdom to lead these people. I'm young. In 1 Kings chapter 3, look at verses 5 through 14. It says, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. 
And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I'm but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, this, your great people? Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you'll walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So God says, I'm going to give you the stuff you didn't ask for. Prestige, wealth, long life. Again, listen, is being rich a bad thing? Not in and of itself, because God is the one who makes rich. God is the one who blesses people with much. So clearly having wealth in itself is not a sin. But as with all of God's good gifts, our attitude towards our money is what becomes sin or not. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verses 17 through 19. Actually, we'll go to verse 10 first, and then we'll jump to verses 17 through 19. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. God blesses us with many good gifts, and as you know, all of these gifts can all of a, in, 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 a, in an instant almost become a problem when we start to worship the gift instead of the giver. And when you have a craving for more money... Wanting to get more and more, you're going to see a lot more passages about this in a little bit. It actually is going to be the root of all kinds of evil. Now, chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good and be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take a hold of that which is truly life. So the wealthy people aren't to put their faith and their confidence in their money. They're to actually have their confidence in God. And what's the way that God knows that we have our trust in Him? We are generous with our money. If you're generous with your money, God says, I can trust you with more. And I'll give you more so you can keep giving more. We're going to look at passages that talk about this tonight. But again... If we are in it to get more money, our God is the money. Money is what's going to take care of us and, and, and provide for us. And that's the problem. But in and of itself, being rich is not a bad thing. Now, we are to hold our possessions so loosely that if God asked us to give them all away, we would. Because our trust is in Him and His provision for us, not in our money or our possessions. That's why the widow who gave her last Two pennies. In the eyes of God, gave more than everybody else. Why? She so trusted God, she gave all she had to live on. 
Most of us would say, well, I'm willing to give, but how much will be left for me to take care of me? Ah, there's your problem. You're looking to what's left to take care of you instead of looking to the one who gave you the ability to have it in the first place. Years ago, I heard this one preacher tell this story. He said that he was at a high school football game, and uh, he, his kid was there in the stands, and his kid says, can I have some money to go buy some candy? And he gives his kid some money, and the kid goes and buys a bag of Skittles. So the kid comes back with the Skittles, and the dad leans over and says to the kid in the middle of the game, he said, hey, can you give me a couple of your Skittles? And the kid goes, no, they're my Skittles. And this preacher said three things went into his head right away, instantly. The first one was, wait a minute, those aren't your Skittles. Those are actually my Skittles. You bought them with the money I gave you. Those aren't even yours. Those are really mine. He said, and second of all, I thought to myself, I'm bigger than you, kid. If I want to take those Skittles, I can take them if I want to. And thirdly, he said, I got a $100 bill in my pocket right now, and if I wanted to go to, buy the, go to the snack bar and buy all their Skittles, I could want all their Skittles and rain them on top of you if I wanted to. And then he said God spoke to his heart about how God is when we have been blessed with everything we have from God, and God says, I want you to give it to me. Give me a couple. Give me some of this. Give me 10%. Give me this. Give me a portion. And we're like, no, it's mine. And God says, is it really yours? Or is everything that you have from me, and it's really mine? And I'm bigger than you, and I can take it if I want to. And plus, doesn't he promise that if we really trust him, he has the ability to rain it down on us and bless us with more than we ever could imagine? Again, we need a proper reminder when it comes to possessions and wealth of what the Bible says. But these truths don't apply only to the rich in this world who are rich financially. Do you know the Bible actually talks about the poor people having the exact same attitude? Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at verse 28. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Did you catch that? He's not just telling the rich people to share. He's telling the poor people, the people that feel like they got to steal to get stuff. The people that are feeling like, I just got to get enough for me. He says, I want you to stop stealing, and I want you to go work with your hands so that you'll have something to share. Why? Because if you really get to that point where you understand that God is your provision and you're generous with it, whether you get a little or a lot, the Bible actually says who's been faithful with little will be given a lot more. If you're not even faithful with a little bit, I don't know how many times I've had people tell me over the years, Pastor, uh, we don't give much, but promise, I promise you, if we win the lottery, we're going to write a big check. And I never say it because I got to be nice, but the prophet in me wants to say, if you ain't writing the check now, you'll never write it when you get the lottery. Go to Proverbs 21. Look at verses 25 and 26. Proverbs 21, verses 25 and 26. It says, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. 
Here again, not talking about a rich person, but talking about a lazy person who doesn't really want to work for anything. But just like the rich people, as you're going to see in a little bit, can crave more and more and more, the poor people crave more and more and more. And if you're honest with yourself, every single one of us have thought what we would do if we ever have money one day. You ever thought that? If I ever have money one day, I want to do such and so. Instead of being satisfied with what we have, trusting God with what we have, and if he decides to give us more, being already giving evidence to the fact that we'd be willing to live the same way if we had more or less. We trust him with whatever we have. So are these biblical principles and what's being written here just for the rich? No, it's for all of us. It's for all of us. But the root of generosity, listen closely. This is something that God really opened my eyes to a few years ago, and it has just, it's changed our life as a family. My wife will tell you, our kids will tell you. It's changed us in our ministry. The root of generosity is not how much we have to give, but simply a trust that God will provide us with everything we need. Years ago, when I was studying the past, some, many passages on generosity, it hit me. God would never ask me to do something or be something that he's not. So if his Bible, if his word is full of passages that talk about being generous, what does that tell us about who God is? He's generous. And it wasn't until I finally believed that God was good and that he was generous, that he would take care of me. It wasn't until I got to that point that I finally was able to let go of what I have. And now, as you've heard me say many, many times in our household, the attitude is this, it's only money. We just see it as a tool. Something need to be, be done? You got a repair that has to happen? Just call the guy and get it done. For years, I used to figure out how I could save a nickel here and a penny there, and I thought I was being a good steward, how I could help God. And God says, I don't need your help. Just do what I ask you to do. But Lord, if I can get five for a dollar instead of four for a dollar, God says, you're still trying to help me. Just trust me and do what I say. And a lot of times when God says, I want you just to write a check, give, give to this ministry, or give to this missionary, or support these people. It used to be, well, how is that going to affect our budget before we decide yes or no? Now our attitude is, if he said to do it, just do it. Write the check. It's only money. It's just money. And when you no longer see it as anything of any value, it's just a tool. It has no power over you. And God actually, we've started to find, blesses us with more so we can just keep giving it away. I, I, I'm going to say something to you that you'll never hear from Christian ministries. We're doing fine. By the way, do you ever notice that Paul broke all the rules according to how we do things in Christian ministries in Philippians when he said, uh, you're the, he said to the, the, the people in Macedonia, he said, you're the only church that helped in our ministry. You're the only church that gave to us. Most ministries now say, we need more monthly supporters. We've only got a few. We need more. If we could just get some more people to sign up. Paul said, you're the only church that helped us, and we are amply supplied. Wait a minute, Paul, you don't tell them that. Because if you tell them that, they might not give. You ever had those thoughts? Those of you in ministry, your brain is, you don't want to tell people that you're okay because now they might write a check to some other ministry instead. So in order to make sure that people are still going to give to you, you don't tell them when you're doing well. What's the root of all of that? You really don't trust that God's going to take care of you and you feel like you have to do some things to manipulate people to make sure that the money comes to you. And you're going to see this in just a little bit. That is the root of what's really going on in this whole study. Do you really trust God? 
Or do you feel like you have to help him take care of you? Are you looking to God as your source or to man as your source? Go to Psalm 112. I promise you, we're coming back to James. Some of you are like, no, I heard James 5, 1 through 6 already. I'm not in a hurry to go back to that section. Look at Psalm 112, verses 1 through 10. This is a passage I've been meditating on for almost two years now. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not even afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. By the way, keep verse 9 in your mind. You're going to see that later tonight. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Go to Philippians 4. Look at verses 14 through 20. Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Don't miss this. We love to, as Christians, quote, my God will supply all your needs. God is going to supply all of my needs. Hang on, look at the context. God will supply all of the needs of the people who are generous, who trust in him. If you think it's up to you to help me, your needs get met, God a lot of times will just back away and say, go ahead, take care of yourself. And we try, and we budget, and we, don't misunderstand me, having a budget's not a bad thing, but you also got to keep in mind who's ultimately in charge of where the money goes. God is. Here he says, because you guys have been generous, and you're going to see some more in just a little bit, he talks about them to the Corinthian church. He talks about this church in Macedonia. He says, because you've been generous, because you just so trusted God, I promise you, mark my words, God will supply all of your needs. I heard just recently a pastor in our area, just in the middle of one of his sermons, wasn't even preaching on it, just stopped and he said, I'm just going to say something I think God wants me to say. And he said this, he said, um, if you've not been giving, I'm going to challenge you to just start tithing for the next six months. And if God doesn't take care of you, we'll give you all your money back. He says, I guarantee you, I promise you, you if you haven't been giving and you, you want to test God, just start testing. And if you come back after six months and say, God didn't take care of us, we'll, give, we'll write you a check and give you all your money back. How could he say that? Because he so trusts God and he knows who God is and his word is true. 
But we individually have to get to that place where we really trust that he is going to take care of us. Not just for our eternal salvation, but for everything. The people in Philadelphia, or Philippi, I almost said Philadelphia, Philippi, the Macedonia church, were generous to Paul in his ministry because they had learned the secret of being content, just like Paul did. Go back real quick to Philippians chapter 4. Look at verses 10 and following. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every situation or circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's the secret? That no matter whether I got a lot or a little, God's going to take care of me. Have you ever noticed that one widow, when God supplied for that widow, every time she went to the cupboard, something was there? But another widow, he has her gather all these jars of oil, and they just pour all the oil, and the oil just keeps coming and keeps coming, and she's to live off the surplus. Now, if your immediate reaction is, I'd rather be the widow who lives off the surplus than every time hoping in the door, it would in the cupboard, it was still going to be there. It's just shown you your heart. Because you trust the surplus more than you do God, who would make it every time you open the cupboard, it would be there. Because you think he can take better care of you with a surplus than he can with every time you open the cupboard, it'll be there. I've had to realize that myself. God asked me this question one time. He said, Jim, if I've promised that I will take care of you and meet all of your needs, would you rather I just take a big chunk and put however many million you think you need for the rest of your life in a bank? Or would you rather it be in my pocket and every time you need it, I give it to you? And I had to go, I kind of like it in the bank. And he goes, why? I said, because deep down, I really don't trust that you'd give it to me when I need it. And also, you might test me and have me go without for a couple of days but if it's in the bank, I never have to worry about that. He said, so you're wanting a relationship with me without a relationship with me. We all have a tendency sometimes, don't we, to put our faith in what's in our bank account? How many of you have ever looked at your bank account or your IRA and done a little bit of math? If I live to be, will it still be there? We all have, haven't we? I think we all need this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen to verses 1 through 15. And by the way, this Macedonian church in Philippi is the one that Paul's talking about. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed and a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. In other words, they weren't forced. They did it of their own will. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord 
and then by the will of God to us. In other words, they took care of their church first, and then they gave to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I, and I don't say this as a command, but to prove or to test by the earnest, earnestness of others that your love also is genuine, genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I don't want, I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. If you remember back when they were collecting the manna, God worked it out that they, everybody had what they needed. Some people gathered more than others, but you know what? By the end, it was going to be fine. And God is saying to them, look, you agreed a year ago to start this collection for the churches in Macedonia. And when I come, I want it. I've been bragging on you to the churches in Macedonia. So when I come, I want it to be there and I want it to be a good offering. But I don't want to force you guys to do this. I want it to be of your own will. But I just want to tell you, the churches in Macedonia, which are way more poor than you guys in Corinth, they actually gave amazingly of their own will. They just so trusted God, they were excited about just being able to be a part of it. Go to 2 Corinthians 9, look at verses 6 through 15. He continues this context, and he says in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Let me stop real quick. For years, I'd have people come up to me and they'd say, Pastor, should we tithe on our net or our gross? What's really going on is, is what's the least I can do and still be legal? First off, God, we're not under law. I think tithing is a wonderful thing, and I actually think the Bible still teaches it. You're not under a law, but at the same time, if you want to be biblical about this, Actually, those who really trust the Lord give way more than 10%. There were tithes and offerings back then under the law, weren't there? Actually, I found that over the years that if you really trust God, he's going to actually challenge you to give more, and he, he'll bless you in it. But what, what I always would say when people come to me and they'd say, should we tithe on our net or our gross? I'd always say, what do you God want, want God to bless you on? Do you want him to bless you on your net or your gross? Because it's the attitude of your heart Years ago, this story has been told over and over, but years ago, Billy Graham was sitting in a church service with, uh, with his wife, Ruth, and they were passing the offering plate, and he put, a, put a, some, money, some cash in the plate, and then he realized as it passed him and was going in front of his wife that he had put in the wrong amount. And so he reaches back for this bill that he had just put in, and his wife slaps his hand, and she says, what are you doing? He goes, I put in a 10. I meant to put in a 5. Ruth, quick as anything, said, well, don't worry, honey. That 10 is now a 5 in the eyes of the Lord. Because <laughs> he goes with the heart. 
He goes with our heart. So the heart of this issue is where we are trusting. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Remember Chico and the man? Not my job. That's what I think of every time I see that, but I'm dating myself. Some of you don't even know what I just said. And Jesus then said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? That's going to be important later on as well. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Where is your trust? In what you've saved for yourself or in the one who provides for us? Go to Luke 18. Look at verses 18 through 23. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. By the way, Jesus wasn't saying he wasn't good, but he was wanting to know if, first off, the guy understood that he was God. And second of all, by saying there's no one good but God, what was Jesus telling him? You ain't good. Now, the guy thinks he is. He says, there's no one good but God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Then Jesus goes on and says, it's actually really hard for rich people to get into heaven. Why? Because it's easier for them to trust in their provisions. Go to Matthew 6, 16. Sorry, not 16, Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. And then verse 24. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Again, keep these things in mind. James is going to talk about this. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jump down to verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The heart of the issue is simply this, where we're trusting. Now, I want to give you a little warning to get you heads up for next week. James is about to move into what we touched on last week a little bit, and we're going to cover it some more next week, where he says, don't judge each other as we're waiting for the return of the Lord and being patient for his return. The real judge is at the door. So be careful at this point that you don't 
start quickly looking at the people around you who might have more than you and start thinking what they should be doing with what God has. And don't fall prey to the, I guess I got to sell everything and give it. No, no, no. God's going to be showing each of us what he wants to do with what we've had, what he's blessed us with. And you just follow him in obedience where he works with you and I and all of us on our hearts as to where we are. And let him set the test. Let him set the, the next thing that he wants to test you in. And just let him work you, walk you through it. And don't worry about everybody else. You just kind of let him show you what he wants you to do. Because we have a tendency to take the scriptures and quickly want to become the God who writes the scriptures. Remember how they took the law of God that said, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy? And they quickly came up with all these rules for how to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And they made everybody else have to follow them. Don't do that. Does God want us to be rich toward him and not put our dependence on our our wealth? Yes. Now, how that specifically plays out for each of us, let the Lord show you. Don't all of a sudden start making rules for everybody else. Well, if you're going to do what God says, you need to give so much and you need to do. No, no, we're under law. We're under grace. And he wants a cheerful giver. God wants us to give out of the abundance of our hearts. Now, Let's go back to James chapter 5 now and look more closely at what James is saying. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. With this foundation laid for us, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back at fraud, by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Hear what James is saying. He says that the rich who trust in their wealth and hoarded their money, it has become worthless. And it's backfired on them. He says, look, he says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you, and they're going to eat your flesh like fire. Remember that parable Jesus told in Luke 12 about the man who said, I'm going to build bigger barns. Kind of backfired on him, didn't it? Because that night, God says, it's time for you to come see me and be judged and reckoned with. And what good will all of that you've just stored up do with you, do for you? Go to Job 27. Job 27, look at verse 8. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? I mean, if you're just living for this world, and you've got all this stuff, we've all heard the, the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. What's the point? If you really understand that there is an eternity, and we're living for that instead of here, what good will storing it all up here do? Go to Psalm 39. Look at verses 4 through 6. 
O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and doesn't know who will gather. Actually, Solomon writes about that in Ecclesiastes. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And look at verses 8 through 17. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 17. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields, things done properly. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they also increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, the more stuff you had, by the way, if you are in this category where you got a house and a car and a boat and another house, guess what? You got more insurance, you got more upkeep, you got more maintenance, you got a bunch of people that are all going to be saying, hey, I want to use your boat. And I wanna... It's not always good to have more stuff. Keep reading. He says, sweet, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And, and he's, if he's father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. If we really let the truth sink in, if you got all this stuff, you can't use it all at once anyway. And all you can do is look at it most of the time. But at the same time, does that mean everybody's supposed to get rid of everything? No, be careful. This is where we want to take the scriptures and become God, and we start telling everybody else how to live their lives. Is it a bad thing to have an extra house and a car and a boat? No. But have an attitude that says, Lord, you've blessed with this. What are you, why have you blessed us with it? Have you ever thought about the fact that God told the nation of Israel when he was sending the plagues on, Israel, on Egypt, he says, when the death angel passes over, they're going to want you to go, and I want you to ask them for their gold, their silver, and their precious cloth. God specifically said, ask them for their gold, their silver, and their precious cloth. And the Bible says they plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians were so wanting them to go, the Egyptians were like, look, take my gold, take my silver, take my precious cloth, go. So then they get out in the wilderness, and they're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we're talking nowhere. And there's nothing around. And God says, hang on for a second. Before we go any further, I want you to build a tabernacle for me so that I can come and dwell with you. 
but I don't want you to just throw it together. I've already got the plans all mapped out. I've already even chosen who's going to build it and who's going to do what. And I want this to be made out of gold. I want this to be made out of silver. And I want these to be made out of precious cloth. God, we're slaves. We just came out of Egypt. Where are we going to get gold and silver? Oh, I understand now. He had already blessed them. But he had a reason for why he blessed them that they were going to find out later on. Folks, if God's blessed you, thank him, worship him, make sure you know it's his, and he will show you why he's given you the excess when it's time. Don't you try to become God and determine what you're going to do with this now. No, no, no. You don't set the test. God sets the test. And if he hasn't told you to do something with it, leave it. Just make sure you're not trusting in it. But if he then says, hey, here's why I blessed you with this, trust him. Trust him. Look at verse 8 again, though, in Ecclesiastes 5. It ties to what James says next. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at that matter. In other words, you're going to see corruption in government all the time. But he says, keep this in mind also, the high officials watched by higher officials, and there are even higher ones over them. And who is the ultimate official? God. Go back to James chapter 5, look at verses 3, the second half of verse 3 through 6. And storing up wealth for themselves, not only did it backfire on them and it didn't do them any good, they also did so to the detriment of the poor, and the righteous, James chapter 5, verse 3, second half of verse 3. He says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in luxury on the earth, and in luxury and self-indulgence you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. We'll get to in the end, he does not resist you. But let me just so, say something to you. God says, I not only know that you've collected all this stuff for yourself, and what good is it on the day of judgment? You can't use it. It's all going to rot and it's going to backfire. But not only that, I also know how you did it. How you did it was by cheating people, taking advantage of people, you were corrupt in how you did it. Now, before we quickly go down that road of corruption in our government and how our people are on the, the almighty dollar wins and all that stuff, which is very true and it's happening, but don't worry. There are higher people over those people and there are higher people over them and ultimately there's a judge who's coming and it's all going to be taken care of. But at the same time, don't think that, oh, I'm not in the government, I'm not in all that. No, 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 we all have a tendency to be like this as well. How many of you ever now and then were given the wrong change? And you did pretty well in the, in the deal. And you were tempted to not give it back. Well, it's a big corporation. I don't know. How many of you have tried to calculate what's the least amount I can give this waitress in a tip? If you're trying to save yourself a nickel here, make yourself a dollar here to the detriment of others, I have learned that God wants us to show our trust in him by actually being more generous. Well, she hasn't, she hasn't worked hard, or she didn't give us good enough service. It doesn't matter. God tells me to bless people. I'm just going to bless them. I'll let God. By the way, since we started doing this, we've been getting emails from my credit card saying, did you really tip 
Yeah. We've had waitresses chase us in the parking lot in tears and say, why? Seriously, why? And we have gotten to tell them why. Because God's blessed us and we want to bless you. And by the way, all during COVID, you all know if you ever traveled, you couldn't find a place to eat because they couldn't wait. Well, restaurants couldn't find workers. There were restaurants that were like half open or shutting down because they couldn't get staff. You know what my wife and I would do? We would call the lady over and we'd say, we want to thank you for being willing to work right now in a world that doesn't want to work. We're on the road all the time, and if we weren't here, we wouldn't have a place to eat. So we want to thank you so much for being willing to work here. Seriously? Sir, seriously? Yes. God is good, and he wanted us to let you know that he loves you. But how many of us try to make a nickel here, save a dollar there? Folks, you're trusting in your own self. You're trusting in money to take care of you. I can look you in the eye and tell you, the ones who trust the Lord give generously. And I can look you in the eye and say, the ones who trust the Lord and give generously, he gives them more. Not so they can get rich, but so they can give more. Go back to 2 Corinthians 9. I stopped right in the middle of that passage, but now I know why God stopped me. I think right now is the best time to go back and look at it again. 2 Corinthians 9. Look at verses 6 and following. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God lives, loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all the grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written he is distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Does that sound familiar? That's in Psalm 112. When it talks about the man who trusts in the Lord, wealth and riches are in his house, and he gives generously. He doesn't worry about bad news. He trusts the Lord. The Lord's going to take care of him. That doesn't mean bad things aren't going to happen, but you know that God said he's going to take it and cause it to work for good, and he's got a reason and a purpose in it, and even though I don't understand it, and even though I don't like it, God, my eyes are on you. God, my trust is in you. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, by the way, I've circled the word will in my Bible, will supply and multiply your seed for what? For more sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You're going to be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For this ministry, of, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God by their approval of this service. They're going to glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Folks, when you sit back and say, well, I don't think she's earned this. You have just made yourself the judge. God didn't say to give it to her if she earned it. God says, bless the waiter or waitress because that's who he is and he wants them to know him. 
Because of your steadfast love for me, Solomon prayed, and your steadfast love for my father, and you have proven it over these years. I so trust you, I don't need to ask you for wealth and riches and long life. What I need is I need you, and I need wisdom. And you've just asked me now. You've chosen me to be the, the king over this big people. I can't even count them all. And I'm young. I don't know what I'm doing. God, help me. I need you. God says, that's the kind of attitude I like. And I'm going to bless you in many ways. Folks, by the way, if you really learn this attitude when it comes toward riches, it'll overflow in all aspects of your life. You're going to be forgiving. You're going to be gracious. You're going to be compassionate. Why? Because you so trust God, you don't have to worry about whether or not your rights are being taken care of. Whether or not you were defended. God's your defender. Oh, that comes back to James. I'm not going to, because of the sake of time, I'm not going to have you go there, but write these passages down. If you don't mind going and looking later, Isaiah 10, 1 through 4. It's Isaiah 10, 1 through 4. Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Amos 4, 1 through 3. Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, that's Malachi 3, 5. So it's Isaiah 10, 1 through 4, Amos 4, 1 through 3, Amos 8, 4 through 6, and Malachi 3, 5. You will see in the Old Testament God bringing the nation of Israel to judgment because of how they treated the poor and what they did to build themselves up. By the way, did you ever notice the story of Ruth and Boaz, how God had already set it up that the widows and those who didn't have could glean from the corners. As they went around the corners, they weren't to get every little bit in the corner. They were to leave that, and that's for the poor. And whatever fell, if it fell behind the, the, the harvesters, leave it. That's for the poor. And so they go, these ladies go, and they're working in the field. And Boaz says, drop some extra stuff. Drop some extra. And Ruth comes back to Naomi, and she's got a lot more than is normally gathered. And Ruth says, what in, I mean, uh, Naomi says, what in the world? And if you remember, when she goes back again, he dumps more. He says, hold out your clothes and piles it all in. Why? Because Boaz's God was a big God. And he was going to be fine. Just generous. By the way, how many Christians, how many churches have known, been known for being cheap? Would we not also agree that we see corruption in our court system where people buy their verdicts and the righteous in the earth are being pushed aside in favor of bigger and better profits? Of course. But we're to live holy lives that speak truth and love but still keep our trust in God and his provision for us, even if that means death and imprisonment in this life. Go back to James chapter 5. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, you've condemned the murder and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, I want you to listen carefully to me. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week when we get into why we're not to grumble against one another as we see the day approaching and Jesus' return. As we're being patient, James clearly says, oh, and by the way, as you're being patient, don't grumble against each other. And I'm going to show you from the scriptures next week how everywhere that God talks about his return, he says, oh, and by the way, don't grumble against each other and don't treat each other bad 
in the meantime. I'm going to deal with why. We're going to get into the specifics of why next week. But I want you to hear this. There's a tendency for us, when it comes to the corruption in this world, to think that we need to do something. Now, I'm not saying that we should not speak up. I'm not saying that we should not vote. I'm not saying that we should not pray. But if our attitude turns into, if we don't do something, America's going to fall apart and we're in trouble. We've got, you've all of a sudden put your faith in man's energy and effort. Instead of just do what he says and trust him for the results. But what if it doesn't? Trust him. Trust him. Go to Matthew chapter 5. There's some passages that we've forgotten in these days. Look at verses 39 through 42. And we'll start in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Did you catch that? That doesn't sound like American response to the, what's going on in the world today. No, we got we to do something. No, 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 we need to speak. We need to share the truth of God and what his word says and leave what happens to God. Go to Matthew 5. Look at verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Go to 1 Peter 2. Look at verses 16 through 23. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good ones and the gentle ones, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Actually, to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges Justly. Folks, you've heard me talk about this in times past, but I think what's happened to the church, especially in America, is false theology about the end times has caused us to actually, even in the church, start living for now. And trying to build the kingdom of God here now, when the Bible says the kingdom is still to come. 
Just like there are those who have been taught that the church has replaced Israel, they also have been taught that we're going to bring in righteousness here and now when the Bible says it's going to get worse and worse and worse until the end. And those of us who are His need to be faithful and keep our eyes on Him. We're to share the truth. We're to stand for truth. We're to be a part of the process and the way God wants us each to be. But we have to stay with an attitude that says, if judgment is coming on the nation, then God is just in bringing it. Do you understand? We're not to try to stop it. We're just to be salt and slow the decay as much as God wants to use us in that area. As we close tonight, let me read to you James 5, 1 through 6 one more time, and then I'm going to read, ask you a question. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Here's the question. Some might say, Jim, these people that James is writing to in the church, were they even saved? Now, the answer is this. Only God knows. But this sure sounds like what was written by Jesus to the church in Laodicea, doesn't it? Go to me, with me to Revelation 3. We'll close tonight with Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And as many of you understand, not only was it a literal church, and not only is this a picture of what happens in all of our individual lives and the lives of the churches, this is also a picture of the church age, the end of it. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the one who really knows. The beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant with him to sit on, with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says to the church in the last days, you get a lot of people that think they're rich and have needed nothing, yet they don't realize the wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, all descriptions of the lost. But he also says, those I love, I reprove and discipline, so repent. And if you don't repent, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. By the way, that's going to happen at the rapture when Jesus takes those who are truly his. And those who aren't will be spit out. I pray none of us here will be in that spit out category. Woe to the rich. Praise the Lord. 
in Jesus, we're all rich, aren't we? Well, let's live like that. Let's believe it. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.